So the Yank delegate from Texas steps up and shouts, remember the Alamo and chucks out the Mexican. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are coming to you live from Wales, United Kingdom. How many different countries are there in this country? Um, Like three. I think there's three. Anyway, we're walking along and where are we? The slaughtered lamb. That sounds appetizing. Let's go and see if they have some hot soup. <laughs> what, what was it that old guy told us from the sheep truck? Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. Beware of the moon. Stick to the roads. Oops. Oops. <laughs> All right, Shirley fans, welcome back for the third of our Halloween episodes this October. We are excited to be talking about werewolf movies today. Jason, do you remember the first time you saw these movies? Yes. The first time I saw an American werewolf in London, I was at a friend's house mm-hmm. spending the night. Yep. It was probably a second grader or a third grader. Right. And we had ordered pizza and nobody asked me what flavor I wanted. <laughs> so I got combo, you uh-huh. know, which... Uh-huh. No kid likes green peppers on their pizza. No. So I was already mad about that. Yeah. And then we're watching American Werewolf in London. And I'm like, wow, this is really amazing. This looks really cool. There's scenes that take place at a porn theater. And yeah. I realize that uh, I'm, I'm like, you know, facing my own death here. Yeah. And what can I do but just eat my pizza with green peppers and watch American Werewolf <laughs> in London and be blown away because it was so awesome. So I got to watch this one with my dad. Uh-huh. And I, I mentioned on our Trading Places versus Coming to America episode from last season that this is where I found out what R-rated meant or kinda. Right. Because my dad wanted me to see this movie. He loved this movie, but there were parts that he said, you got to leave. I was watching it at the house. I wasn't at the theater, but I was like, you got to leave this part. I'm like, why? He goes, because it's scary. He right. let me watch the werewolf change completely, <laughs> but it was like too scary for me to watch. And that's what rated R meant. And then a couple of years later, I found out, no, rated R meant something completely different and much more fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Both of these movies have scenes that like pornography is taking place in the background. They had to film the porn scenes first. Both directors were like, all right, well, guess we're going to make a porn movie to put in our non-porn movie. Right. It's, which is weird. We can talk about that in a minute, but that's it's crazy. There are a ton of similarities in these movies, the most important of which is the amazing change, metamorphosis into the wolf. I would say that that's the highlight of both movies. Absolutely. The transformation from man to wolf was so astounding when you watch this for the first time in 1981. Mm-hmm. Remember, there's no computers. This is all done with latex and rubber and fake hands and all this stuff. Like every Wolfman movie that had come out before this, the guy would be sitting in a chair and it would be like a time-lapse photograph type thing where the hair just kind of appears on his face and then he wakes up and he's a wolf. Right. Right. Which that's what John Landis wanted to be done with. Yeah. I mean, his whole thing was if your bones are stretching and your face is morphing into something, it's going to be super painful. And man, that scene is incredible because all of a sudden David is like in intense pain, like his head is exploding or something. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the history of these movies and how they came about. Okay, let's do it. 
All right. Starting with Mr. John Landis. I've told a little bit of the story before, but it's worth repeating. It's been a year. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So John Landis is a little kid and he sees this movie, Jason and the Argonauts. Right, right. And it's got the stop motion photography with these monsters and cyclops. Goes home. He says, who is the guy who makes movies? Because he's so fascinated. And his mom says, that's the director. And he says, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do with my life. And by 16, he's working in the mailroom in one of the Hollywood studios. He gets to know some people. And by 17, there's a director who's calling him from Yugoslavia who says, hey, man, you want to get into pictures? If you can find a plane ticket to get out here, I'll put you to work. And so he goes to his bank. He has just enough money to buy a plane ticket. But he goes and tells his mom, hey, they're flying me out there. Right. He's withdrawn his own money just to fly out there. He's they're flying me out there to make movies so that she'll go, okay, you can go out there. Right. And so he goes out there and makes Kelly's heroes with Clint Eastwood yeah. and Donald Telly Sutherland, Telly Savalas, Donald Sutherland, Harry Dean Stanton. Okay. From Alien. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets he gets all kinds of work over there in Europe, learns all kinds of things. But while he's working on Kelly's heroes, they're over there in Yugoslavia. They're driving down this like 400 mile long single lane road. The driver's a Yugoslav guy who he said has probably been convicted of war crimes since then. <laughs> and they come across a funeral. Right. And the funeral is being done by gypsies. I mean, he said it looked like they were out of central casting. They had the babushka, they had the headdress, they had the tassels, they had it all, right? It's it's they look just like you would cast a gypsy in the old movies, which if you remember from the original Wolfman, that's the lady that gave us all the exposition. That's right? true. That's true. And so they're doing this funeral and they they've got garlic on the guy and he says they buried him feet first, like upright. Yeah. Yeah, and he he's talking to this driver of his who's just laughing at this he just thinks it's all ridiculous but he's talking to him and he's like why are they doing it like this and the guy says well that's to make sure that the guy doesn't wake up dig himself out of the grave and go get these people if you bury him feet first it's impossible for him to get out well of course i mean that just makes common sense it's good sense right <laughs> i mean somebody's waking from the dead they're going to be completely stopped by being upright <laughs> And so they go on their way. And then that night he can't sleep. All he can think about is what would happen if some undead gypsy came to attack me? And that is what lights the spark for the script that he writes for the movie that will become American Werewolf in London. That is a great story, man. That's a great story. You know, 1981, we had four major werewolf movies. Yeah. We're going to be covering the two big ones today. American Werewolf in London. Yep. Came out in August of 81. Yep. The Howling came out in April of 81. Yeah. Then you had Full Moon High. I'm sorry. What? Full Moon High. Full Moon High. It's kind of like Teen Wolf. Okay. It's like, oh. a, it's like a precursor to Teen it Wolf. It had Adam Arkin and Ed freaking McMahon. <laughs> Here's Full Moon High. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had a movie called Wolfen. Yes. With Albert Finney. Yeah. But we picked the best. Oh, we only pick winners. Out of doubt. Yes. Yeah. The Wolfen, I remember seeing Wolfen, but I don't, I remember that I saw it, but I don't remember the movie. Like it's just very forgettable. I was disappointed when I saw it. And Full Moon High, interestingly, was directed by a guy named Larry Cohen. Yeah. He also directed a movie called It's Alive. And he had been working on a movie before that with this young kid named Rick Baker. 
Yeah. And Rick had been doing some special effects for various movies. And Larry Cohen's like, you should come do the special effects for this movie. It's alive. Well, he didn't actually end up doing that. But another guy who was interested in Rick Baker's special effects was John Landis. He had gotten back to the U.S. by then. He had seen this movie called Trog, which is about a troglodyte, which is it's terrible. Right. It's a terrible movie. And he was like, this is a terrible, this movie is so bad. I want to make a joke movie about it. And it, that movie that he wanted to make was going to be called Schlock. And he was going to dress up in this kind of ape costume. And so he's new to this, right? He's only got about $60,000 to make the movie. And so he goes to find out how much the costume is going to cost, talks to one of his friends from the movies that he's been involved in. They're like, we can do it for $80,000. He's like, um, <laughs> okay, that's. 20,000 more than the entire budget for the whole movie. Right. Hey, before you get off Larry Cohen. Okay. I just want to give a quick shout out to our buddy, James Buckley. Last week when we did M versus Psycho versus Silence of the Lambs with our friends at the 30 something podcast, the trivia question that we talked about during that episode was we covered the movie M name the only two other movies with one letter titles. Right. And we came up with the movie R and the movie Z. Well, about 10 minutes after we dropped our episode on Tuesday morning, James Buckley sent me a text <laughs> and said, don't forget about the movie Q. Q. Which I'd never heard of before. All right. Turns out it's a Larry Cohen movie. Right. The poster looks really cool. It's got David Carradine in it and there's a dragon in the city. That's something I'd watch. Uh, Maybe not. <laughs> and then our buddy Dayton Johnson uh -huh. from the Docking Bay 77 podcast. Right. He hit me up and said, don't forget about the movie O. Oh, oh, which was short for Othello, I think. Oh, right. They, they did yeah. that pretty recently, 10 or 15 years, maybe. Right. Okay. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate you listening. And I wonder if that there's out. a way to get a shorter title than one letter. Decimal oh. point? Yeah, I don't know. Underscore? Somebody out there have the balls to make a movie with just the decimal point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So John Landis is looking for somebody to make his costume. The guys who are professionals are too expensive, but they've got a business card for this kid who's just come by. They hand the business card to John Landis and the business card says, Rick Baker, monster maker. Love it. And he's just a kid. Like they're both just kids. <laughs> John Landis is 21. Rick Baker is 20. They get together and John Landis is this hyperactive, crazy guy. And Rick Baker is this kind of shy, subtle kid at the time, but he's making these amazing monster things inside his mom's oven, right? <laughs> right. And he ends up doing the special effects for Schlock. Yes. While they're working together. John Landis tells him about this script idea that he has, and he says, I've got this werewolf movie idea, and what has to happen is the change, the metamorphosis has to be painful. Do you think you could do something like that? Yeah. And Rick Baker's like, yeah, sure. Sounds fun. Yeah, exactly. It's right up my alley. But the problem is nobody wants to make the movie. Right. They can't tell whether it's a comedy or a horror movie. It's funny and it's scary. But what do we do with that? There's a combination. I mean, I don't understand that. I mean, there have been comedy horror movies in the past. I don't know why. I don't think this. First of all, I'm spiking the football. This is not a comedy. But it's hilarious. There's funny parts. It's, it's not a comedy. You're right. I mean, you start off the movie with two young kids who are both dead by the end of the movie. There are funny situations. Lots of funny situations. And and the fact that there's young boys involved, they say funny things and they do funny things. Yeah. But it's a horror movie. Definitely. Okay. Keep going. Okay. okay. Oh, no. Do you, you have something? Well, I was just going to say, when you're talking about the development, John Landis wrote this when he was a teenager, yeah. right? So, you know, for Kelly's Heroes, he's in Yugoslavia. He's 18, 19 years old. He writes 
basically the same script we see on screen for American World from London, but he's 19 years old. Right. It, Rick Baker said the script that he read back in the early 70s, except for the porn theater, right. it was almost identical word for word for what they put on the screen. Right. right. And the reason that the porn theater was a porn theater was because Piccadilly Circus had changed in that 10 year time period. Originally it had been a regular movie theater that showed cartoons. And so it was supposed to be this cartoon movie and they would show cartoon violence interchanged with the real violence. But by the time they start filming it, it's porn theater. So when Rick Baker and John Landis were discussing American War of London back in the seventies, They had this kind of agreement that when I make this, you're going to do the makeup. Mm -hmm. And Rick Baker's like, heck yeah, I am, because that's what I want to do. Right. And Rick Baker's like, 10 years passed and nothing had happened. Right. Well, they both go on. I mean, John Landis gets a lot of work just from the script, right? People don't want to make the movie, but they say, here's a talented guy. And so he starts getting work. And of course, Rick Baker is doing work, including, by the way, I just found this out the day. Yeah. Special effects on flesh gordon <laughs> i'm not kidding what like it is his he his first credited special effect is schlock his second one is flesh gordon gotta start somewhere well they were great special effects if you look at the imdb all of the pictures are the special effects they didn't they didn't have any other pictures from the movie google search right so as you mentioned 10 years go by and they're both doing other work rick baker is getting special effects work and john landis starts directing some movies movies that we've talked about in the past he directs the kentucky fried movie which was the original zucker brothers production right and then that leads him into Animal House. Yes. Fantastic. Huge movie. hit. Right. Then, just before this movie comes out, they release The Blues Brothers. Another humongous hit. Right. But right at the time that The Blues Brothers is coming out, there's this book that's come out called The Howling. <laughs> So in 1977, this book had come out by Gary Bradner. I think it was his fourth book, but it was like a new series. And it was called The Howling. It's about this woman who gets attacked and raped and has to go to like a country town to kind of recuperate. Wait, wait, wait. You said raped? Yeah. A little different than the movie. A little different than the movie. And it's, it's a town. It's not like, you know, a spa for the... The, you know, mentally disturbed, it is a town. Okay. And that's where the werewolves come in, right? She's stressed out because of her experience. And then she's got these werewolf hearings and soundings going on. And so they're like, is it the psychosis or whatever, you know? So he writes this movie called The Howling. Studio picks it up. They say, okay, we want Jack Conrad to direct. So Jack Conrad and this guy named Terrence Winkless work on a script together. And it's pretty bad. Okay. And just... I got to say this. This is the one of the rabbit holes that I went down, okay? Okay. So Terrence Winkless, he gets a credit on this. He gets a writing credit on this. But among the other things that he's done in the past is to play Bingo the Gorilla on the Banana Splits Adventure. <laughs> Tra-la-la, la-la-la. Which was directed by... Don't tell me Richard Donner. That's right. Whoa! Are you serious? Yes. Woo! Dick Donner. There you go. Okay, so they look at that and they're like, this is really bad, guys. We don't we don't like this. Uh-huh. And so we're kind of going to go a different way with it. And they pick up Joe Dante. Okay. Now, at this point, 
all that Joe Dante has done is piranha. Piranha. Yeah. So it wasn't like a big, you know, win for them. It's like, we got this guy who did a movie that was a pretty good Jaws knockoff. Right. Which also had in it Belinda Blansky, who's in this movie. Right. She right? plays Terry. Right. And so they get Joe Dante and he picks up this guy who is also a Roger Corman guy with him named John Sayles. Yeah. We've talked about in the past. That's right. right. Yeah. And he says, hey, John, I need you to come help me work on this script. And he tries to make it fit to the novel a bit more. And ultimately, they just say, you know what? Just forget the novel. Just make it your own. And that's the script that we end up with. Here's the funny story about that. Yeah. So well, Joe Dante was the director of the movie, and he had been pretty critical of the book. And so he was given a speech at a Hollywood scriptwriting institute, right? He's given a lecture, and he started talking, and he's bad-mouthing the book. Okay. And a man raised his hand in the audience and he stood up and he said, so you don't like the book? And he's like, yeah, I think I've been pretty clear. I don't like the book. The guy's like, well, my name is Gary and I wrote that book. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> Ouch. So I've watched, I watched the documentary on this, right? And Joe Dante talks about how he and the author didn't really get along, but doesn't go into any more detail than that. So I did not know that. <laughs> Fantastic. So once they've determined, okay, we've got the director, we've got a better script. We need somebody to do the special effects. Let's get this guy, Rick Baker. And Rick Baker's like, you know, it's been 10 years. I, I think I could do this and it might not be a problem. It's been 10 years. It's been 10 years. I'm ready to do a werewolf movie. Right. Except as soon as he signs on to do the howling, he kind of just gets started. He gets a phone call from John Landis. who's like, guess what? Good news. I'm greenlit on this movie, American Werewolf in London. And we're finally going to make our werewolf movie. And Rick Baker's like, bad news, dude. <laughs> I'm already making a werewolf movie with this other guy. And he's like, you bleepity bleep. You've been bleep bleep bleep. Yeah. He's like, all right. So Rick Baker went to him and said, hey, I've had an agreement with this guy for a long time. I'm sorry. I've got to step away. So Rick Baker steps away from the howling to do American War in London. Yep. And the guy he leaves in charge is Rob Botton. And yes. Rob ends up doing a great job with it. Well, like we said, the, the highlight of the howling is the transformation scene. Yeah. Absolutely. Both these movies did a great job. So the Howling was doing so well that it actually won the Saturn Award in 1980 before it was even released. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I didn't know that. Right. So we mentioned this. It's released in April. They filmed American Werewolf in London from like February to March. Right. So like right before it's supposed to come out, they're filming American Werewolf in London. I'm wondering how much access like Landis and his folks had to the howling. I bet you Rick Baker had read the script. No question. No question. So, and then here comes Rick Baker. I bet they knew a lot about it. Right. Okay. So you ready to talk casting? Let's talk casting. Okay. okay. I don't have tons on the howling. Let's start there. Okay. 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 So first star of the movie, D Wallace. Yes. D Wallace Stone. D Wallace Stone. Another major actor in the movie is Christopher Stone. Yeah. She wasn't D Wallace Stone at the time. They were just engaged. They were engaged. And they needed a guy to play her husband in the movie. She was already signed on. And she's like, I know the sure way to not get my fiance this part is to say, hey, my fiance is an actor. Right. So she says, you know, I know this guy. 
Um, God, what is his name? <laughs> He'd be great for this part. Uh, Chris, Chris Stone, Chris Stone. You should give him a call. Yeah. Wow. And so they call him in, he comes in and he gets, he does his audition. He does a great job with it. And so a little later on, they call him to offer him the part. And when they call D Wallace answers the phone. Right. And the casting director's like, huh. Oh, D I'm sorry. I must've dialed the wrong number. I, I, I must have mixed your number up with this Chris Stone. And she's like, no, you call the right number. He's like, do not tell me. She's like, yeah, I'm sorry. We're engaged. He's like, oh my gosh. I don't see how, if you've read the script, that you want your fiance to be in this movie. I would like to watch my fiance end our marriage, (laughs) sleep with other women, and turn into a werewolf that tries to kill me. Can you do a naked scene with a really, really hot woman? Oh, yes. Uh, Yes. Yes. So, and just on that scene real quick, we'll just hit it now. Let's hit it now. Joe Dante, he's a little awkward. He's kind of a get the Joe Pesci kind of thing. He's a little awkward. And uh, he goes up to D Wallace. He's like, uh, we're tomorrow. We're, uh, we're filming the, uh, fireside, uh, wolf lovemaking. Uh, <laughs> she's like, what are you trying to say, Joe? He's like, I was just wondering if you were planning to be there, uh, <laughs> She's like, it sounds like you don't want me there, Joe. <laughs> Just, well, it might make it a little bit awkward. Might be easy. She's like, that's fine. I won't come. I won't come. And so she went and drank all day. <laughs> that's a funny story. I had not heard that before. Here's my funny story with that scene. Okay. Okay. So you have Elizabeth Brooks. Yes. And she's hired to play the super sexy, mysterious Marsha werewolf. Right. Right. Yeah. And she's sort of casting that spell on Christopher Stone and he he starts to not be able to resist her uh-huh. anymore. Right. Right. So she has this big naked sex scene yeah. in, the, in the woods. Yeah. And she had read the script and was familiar with it, but she's like, I knew I was supposed to be nude, but I thought they were going to like cover me with smoke and stuff. <laughs> and I'm listening to them. She's, she was very much against nudity and she uh-huh. came out against Joe Dante. He was really mad. Yeah. That he showed so much of her. Uh-huh. And I'm like, you were standing there. Your clothes were off. Right. How do you not know? I mean, this is a major scene in the movie. Come on. Right. Ridiculous. Maybe she expected them to animate the smoke in like they did with that last <laughs> scene. The cartoon scene? The cartoon scene. Why? Why? When you watch this movie. Yep. You have, it goes from like Cinemax After Dark <laughs> to like wolves getting it on. Like half human, half wolves. Uh-huh. And then you have like cartoons getting it on yeah it looks like lord of the rings the animated version (laughs) it's pretty bad it's bad and apparently i guess they had that that clip from the advertisements they had done like the trailers and previews and stuff that they had done and they just stuck it in there but i don't think it was originally intended to be in the movie and i don't think they should have put it in there it wasn't necessary it was distracting it was yeah definitely distracting just one thing on casting yeah elizabeth brooks took the part of marcia yeah. That part was actually offered to Annette Haven. Does that ring any bells with you? No. Okay. Annette Haven yes. was a triple X porn star from the 70s. <laughs> I'm glad. Glad I was like, you passed the test. Oh, yeah. I know her. <laughs> oh, yeah. my. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. But she uh, she didn't get the part, but <laughs> apparently it was close. She probably would have been a little more comfortable with the nudity getting it on scene. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So, it- Along as, as long as we're on the topic of nudity, yes, D. Wallace also was against the nudity, and she was like, "Okay, I understand that this lovemaking scene has to happen or whatever." Right. But she had it in her contract 
that there would be no other nudity scenes in the movie at all. Not just her, but like nobody. Nobody else could be nude. She would be a part of a booby movie. Right. Right. And so they come to do the final scene, the barn scene where everything is revealed. And she said she walks on the set and there are boobies everywhere. Like they've just got a ton of women completely naked, all ready to do this scene. And she's like, what's going on here? And I'm like, well, we just need to film this final scene. And she's like, "Um, why are there naked people? We don't need naked people for this final scene. Yeah. And I'm like, well, we really, the, the, Producers just feel like it's important that we have, you know, we reach a certain demographic and, you know, there are going to be a lot of teenage kids who are into this movie or whatever. And she's like, I have it in my contract. There will be no more boobies. (laughs) So I'm going to sit down and I'm not going to take part in the scene until these ladies are clothed or gone. And they're like, come on. She's like, I'm not kidding. I'm not shooting it. They're like D and she's like, not shooting it. And he goes, I have to call the producer. She goes, call it. And so she hears him on the phone. You know, 20 minutes go by. He comes roaring up in his car. He bursts out of the car. He's obviously really angry. Right. Jumps out of the car, goes into the barn, looks around. He's like, you're right. This is ridiculous. Get these (laughs) women out of here. I'm sorry you had to go through this, Ms. Wallace. That's good. I thought thought he was going to, you know, go full on wolf and (laughs) wolf out, you know. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. Great story. That's a great story. So the movie starts with our psychiatrist who ends up being a major player in this one. Yes. And he is played by an actor named Patrick Mackney. Do you know him? No. Do you know the old British Avengers? The Avengers? Yeah. It was like a super spy. Yeah, yeah. He was that guy. He was the main guy in the Avengers. Really? Yeah. And so he, I checked him out. He has an interesting childhood. His mother was a socialite and his dad was like a horse trainer. And while his dad was gone, she got involved in another relationship and they ended up separating. And she went to live with her new lover, whose name was Evelyn. This is 1929. Not that, I mean, in today's world, you know, a hundred years almost later, not such a big deal, but 1929, she was the heir to the doer's whiskey fortune. And she ended up paying for much of Patrick's schooling. And he just referred to her as uncle Evelyn. Interesting. Yeah. You know that he is the only confirmed werewolf that we see zero transformation from. Yeah, that's right. Everybody else wolfs out at some point. Yep. He's also one of the only actors in the world to have portrayed both Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes on screen. And you know what TV series he was Sherlock Holmes in? No. Magnum P.I. Nice. Yeah. Well, he thought he was Sherlock Holmes. He wasn't really. Well, you know. Yeah. All right. So then we've got Dennis Dugan, who we've talked about before. Mr. Happy Gilmore. He's the director of all the Adam Sandler movies. Yeah. And he is the guy who was in Moonlighting, who was the fiance of Sybil Shepard's character. I feel like we just talked about this. Guy. We did, but it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's all the tapestry, right? It's really cool how this all goes together. All right. So let's talk about Robert Picardo. Okay. So Robert Picardo is the main werewolf. He's Eddie. He's the super bad werewolf that's chasing D. Wallace around from the very beginning. Yes. And so he had been, he, he'd gone to Yale as a pre-med student, yes. decided to drop out to pursue acting, had done well, was on Broadway, and this was his debut movie. Yes. Yes. And I heard him where he's like looking at himself in the mirror with the melted face yeah. and the werewolf half stuff. And he's like, I was on Broadway. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I was pre-med at Yale and somebody looks at him and goes, he did read the whole script, right? <laughs> and so I heard this, he tells this story and then, you know, we're researching both the movies. Rick Baker tells an identical story with... Griffin Dunn. Yes. Griffin was in his, you know, torn to shreds makeup and he's just looking more and more depressed. And Rick Baker's like, what's wrong? He's like, this is just the first time I've ever been in a feature movie and look at me. And Rick <laughs> Baker says, well, maybe read the whole script next time. Huh, Griffin? <laughs> it's a good lesson. Yep. So Patrick Mackney's character is named George Wagner. Right. George Wagner is the name of the director of the original Wolfman from 1941. Right. The director for Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, William Neal, which is Christopher Stone's That's character. Right. The director for The Curse of the Werewolf from 1961 is Terence Fisher, which is Belinda Belansky's name. Terry? Yep. Okay. You've got... The Legend of the Werewolf, which was directed by Freddie Francis. Freddie Francis is played by Kevin McCarthy, who you will know from the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or if you're like you and me, from Inner Space. Yeah. The bad guy. Never bag. Never bag. He was also in Twilight Zone, the Joe Dante part of Twilight Zone. I love Inner Space. And then you have Earl Kenton, who directed House of Dracula. And Earl Kenton was the name of John Carradine's character. John Carradine was actually in House of Dracula. That is <laughs> that is cool. You've got Sam Newfield, who directed The Mad Monster. Sam Newfield's the name of Slim Pickens' character. And then you have Charles Barton, who directed Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. And Charles Barton is the name of Noble Willingham's character. What in the wide, wild world of sports is going on here? Okay, so let's talk about Slim Pickens real quick, okay? <laughs> so Slim Pickens, I had to go, I was like, oh, I finally get to research Slim Pickens. So Slim Pickens is not his real name. He was born Lewis Lindley Jr. Uh-huh. He's a dairy farmer with his daddy. Yeah. And he decided to start rodeoing. He had gotten pretty good at riding horses and stuff. And his dad found out about it and said, you cannot do that. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get killed. No, sir. No way. No chance. But he made some pretty good money rodeoing. He was pretty darn good at it. Yeah. And so he had to sneak away, sneaks away to be in the rodeo. And he says, what's the prize money? And he goes, well, for a kid like you, Slim Pickens. And he goes, yeah, that's my name. Slim Pickens. Love it. And that's how he gets his name as he uses a pseudonym for the rodeo so his dad doesn't know that he is rodeoing around. That is a fantastic story. Well, you're blowing gets, my mind. It gets better. Okay. He enlists in the army because World War II, right? right? And so he goes and he, when he's doing his enlistment, they say, What's your profession? And he says, oh, I did rodeo. And somehow that gets misread into radio and he spends the entire time of his enlistment at a radio station in the midwest <laughs> which is how he gets into entertainment that's fantastic yep wow you blow me away all right okay let me just touch on john carradine real quick he's the unmistakable old man with the deepest voice you've ever heard in your life did you immediately think of anything whenever you saw it, when you heard him speak no i heard that voice and i was like that's the owl from secret of nim sure enough it is. Wow. John Carradine, who is the father of David Carradine, Keith Carradine, and John Carradine. Yeah. David Carradine, by the way, in Q, which we just talked about. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. And we can't leave without talking about a couple of important guys, all right? We've got Dick Miller, 
who's yeah. in all of Joe Dante's movies because yes. he was in so many of the Roger Corman movies, right? Right. You've got Kenneth Toby, who we've talked about before. He was the guy who was in the original The Thing. He was the gas station attendant in Gremlins. He's the guy in Airplane who says he's a danger to everything in the air. Yes, birds too. <laughs> and you've got Jim McCrell as Lou Landers, who also is in Gremlins as Lou, Lou Landers. Landers. There you go. And is also in another werewolf movie. What? He's the principal in Teen Wolf. That's right. Yeah. Man. Wets himself. <laughs> that is fantastic. You're blowing my mind. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is the Howling and Gremlins take place in the same universe. Absolutely. Yes. Woo! As a matter of fact, if you watch Gremlins closely, on the refrigerator is a little smiley face. That's which right. Is the calling card of Eddie Quist. Yes. Okay, let's go over to the casting of American Werewolf in London. Okay. So you've got, basically, you've got three main characters, right? Yeah. I mean, four. we'll say four of the Doctor. Yeah. Okay. So you got Griffin Dunn, who plays Jack Goodman. You've got David Naughton, yep. who plays David. Yep. You've got Ginny Agutter, who plays Nurse Price. Yep. And you've got John Woodvine, uh-huh. who plays Dr. Hirsch. Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. John Landis, we've already said, is super energetic, super hyper. Uh, he's here. He's there. He's here. He's there. So Griffin Dunn had never done a movie before. So he didn't even really audition for this. He just shows up. Okay. Shakes John Landis's hand. They uh-huh. talk for 10 minutes. And he's like, you're Jack. Yeah. Nice. Okay. That's all? That's it. That's it. You got it. Okay. David Naughton had done, he was kind of famous for doing the Dr. Pepper commercial. Oh, yeah. You remember the Dr. Pepper commercial? Oh, I absolutely do. Yeah. I'm Pepper, you're Pepper, he's Pepper, she's Pepper. Wouldn't you like to be Pepper too? He sang. Yeah. He was also in a TV series called Making It. He's the one who sings the theme song. Sang the theme song to the TV series (laughs) that he starred in, which ends up being a top five hit. I sent that to you the other day, and it is fantastic. It is disco at its best. Let's listen to it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the star of an American world in London singing disco. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. So when David Naughton met with John Landis, they sat down, they had a conversation. Naughton said, well, he was a pepper. I was a pepper. So we hit it off. <laughs> <laughs> then Ginny Ogeter, she had been an actress for a while. She had yeah. started out as a dancer, mm-hmm. had been like a child actor. Yep. 13, 14? Yeah. Yeah. She's very girl next door, and I would not mind having her as my nurse. Nurse Price. (laughs) So anyway, I was telling my son, he was asking about this podcast. Yeah. She is actually in the Winter Soldier. Yeah. She plays a part. She's one of the councilwomen in in Winter Soldier. So she's still doing stuff. And if you don't remember her, she's the one that it turns out she's Black Widow in a costume. That's right. Tears her face off. Right. That's right. Also, David Naughton, just throwing this out there. Yeah. David Naughton starred in the greatest ski movie of all time. And as you know, I am a big skier and I'm a big fan of Hot Dog the Movie. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Yeah. So just say this, Griffin Dunn. Yes. So randomly yesterday, I'm watching Hacks with Casey, right? Uh-huh. And one of the characters mentions this author. And I was like, oh, who's that? I'll look that person up. And I look her up and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And then I see that there's been a documentary made about her life, which has been 
pretty well received. And it turns out it's directed by her nephew, Griffin Dunn. It's like, oh, wow. And I said, that's at the point I start researching him. Did you know that Griffin Dunn's sister was in Poltergeist? No. She plays the teenage daughter in Poltergeist, which is interesting enough. I didn't know that. But she's she died like the her next boyfriend year. killed her. Yeah. yeah. Boyfriend, abusive boyfriend kills her and then ends up only getting three years for voluntary manslaughter. I'm familiar with some of the poltergeist story, which we need to talk about sometime. Yeah. I did not know that was Griffin Dunn's sister. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Okay. I'm going to blow your mind for a minute. You okay. Ready for this? Yes. Yeah. John Landis was very clear that he wanted to hire two young, not even men yet. Like they're still boyish, right? Right. College students. Yep. But he was very specific. He wanted unknown actors. Right. The studio said, how about Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi? I saw that. I saw that. How weird of a movie would that have been? That would have been much harder to distinguish between comedy and horror. Oh, for sure. It would also would have been very cool to see John Belushi torn to shreds. I was at the beginning. Say, which one of them dies? Which one of them dies? Which one of them's Jack and which one of them's David? I think it's John Belushi. It's got to be, right? Because well, he's slower, right? <laughs> 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 I don't know. I, I, know. I think John Belushi was, he ran track, right? He was in the- uh, That's the true. Olympics, right? Yeah. Okay. So here's an interesting thing for you. So Frank Oz is actually in American Wire from London. Yeah. He's right? in all of John Landis's movies, except for Coming to America, where when they get to the airport, they announce Frank Oshowitz, please pick up. That's right. Yeah. We that, talked about that. Yeah. So Frank Oz is the American delegate, Mr. Collins. Right. Okay. And he's the one who's like, Mr. Kessler, calm down. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So he- and if you listen to Daniel, I'm like, that is Miss Piggy talking right uh-huh, there. Yeah. Okay. So he actually plays two parts in this movie. Yeah. One part is Mr. Collins. And the other part's Miss Piggy. The other part's Miss Piggy. Yep. There's a part where they're watching. And this is interesting. I didn't really pick up on this before, but it's all over this movie. You've got the Muppets and you've got Mickey Mouse and you've got Donald Duck and they are all animals who are otherwise anthropomorphic like humans. Okay. And during the change scene, to just to let you know, this isn't just a coincidence. During the change scene, there's a moment where he's just looking right at Mickey Mouse, who's just smiling back at him. That's right. Donald Duck is on the banister behind him. Interesting. Yeah. You know that that Muppet show, that particular Muppet show that you see in An American War of London Uh was never shown in the United States. Because too violent. So Americans just think, wow, they made a special Muppet show for the uh, movie. Yeah. It's not the case. They just didn't show it in the US. Yeah, there's Punch and Judy's going on, right? Yep. Isn't that what it is? Punch and Judy. Michael Beck, who was in The Warriors, was considered for the part of David Kessler. Okay. Okay. But Polygram didn't want him because he had been in Xanadu and Xanadu flopped. Okay. I think it's interesting that David Naughton had a crush on Jenny Adegator. He did. I don't blame him. Well, the shower scene. Dude, we've talked about this. Yeah. I, I, took, I, I called you this week and I said, there are jobs <laughs> where your your job is to make out with Jenny Agutter for two days in the shower. Naked. 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 And get paid. Yeah. Which sounds nice, but I don't know. That seems like after a while, you'd get a little awkward. Yeah. You'd maybe be a like, little bit pruney. Yeah. <laughs> so they were supposed to be college students, but David Naughton was 30. Griffin Dunn was 26. And they didn't know each other at all before filming. He was 30. He was 30. That means he's 70 right now. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. The interesting thing. So they didn't know each other at all 
before they started filming, but because they were from the same part of the United States, Northeast Connecticut, I think. Uh And they were also the only Americans in the crew. So they became fast friends. They're the only Americans in the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. So I mean, John Landis, right? Yeah, no, I guess so. So listen to this when they were casting for Jack, Mm-hmm. Before they had hired Griffin Dunn, British filming board, whoever looks over all this stuff and okays their filming permits and stuff. Right. They said, everything is fine, except the part of Jack. We would like that to go to an English boy. There's no reason why an English actor can't play an American. And John Lannis is like, look, dude, that's the guy I want. They're like, no, we really. And they started to squeeze him. He's like, you know what? I'll just change this to be an American werewolf from Paris. Thank you very much. See you later. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Okay. And then they caved. So it's interesting that you say that. So do you know how they decided to make that first scene in Wales? No. When he started doing his research, he was like, okay, where have the most, you know, werewolf sightings occurred? Yeah. And the answer is France and Wales. And since he didn't speak French, he went with Wales. Okay. So, but as it turns out, he was willing to go to France too, I guess. Yeah. Speaking of, let's just talk. Should we talk about sequels for right now? We can do it because it needs to be done and, and ended right. before we get. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about sequels real quick. Yeah. I've seen an American world from Paris. I have too. We saw it in the theater. I did too. Uh, we probably both saw it in Tulsa. It was okay. See. Oh, all right. I had free tickets and I was pissed. I wanted my money worth, <laughs> worth every penny. Yes. And I felt like kind of a jerk because I had a friend who won free tickets and thought, hey, let's all go together. And then I was kind of an irate jerk after I got out of there because it was so bad. It was, I mean, the story wasn't a particularly well done story, but the werewolves were CGI and they weren't just CGI. They were 1990s CGI and it was not Jurassic Park. Right. It was horrible. It was horrible. Really horrible. Somebody should have called Rick Baker. That's all I have to say about that. Have you seen The Howling Part 2? I've seen the ending credits of The Howling <laughs> Part 2. Oh, my gosh. So they went to Elizabeth Brooks and asked her back yeah. after she was mad at them for showing too much of her boobs. Right. And they said, guess what? More boobs on display in Part 2. <laughs> she said, nope, I'm out. Yeah. So they got Sybil Danning to be like the... Who has no trouble at all showing her boobs, right? But as it turns out, she was kind of tired of being that girl. And she's <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that in this movie. And they're like, well, that's kind of why we came to you. And she's like, okay, once, right. one time, I will do a one, one boob take. And that is it. <laughs> that is all yes. one. Right. And so they're like, great. Sounds great. Now they had all kinds of other boobies in the movie, but they took her scene where she's ripping her shirt off. Right. And in the ending credits, it is shown no less than 14 times. <laughs> Oh my gosh, let's capitalize on what we got. Oh my word. Keep showing that in the closing credits. Closing credits. It was used like the rhythm section. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Before we leave casting on American Werewolf in London, we gotta mention some stuff because we got a we got a decent fan base over in the UK. And there are some guys that are not as familiar to us, but for the folks in the UK, they are well-known faces. Okay. You've got David Schofield, who uh, his he's been in all, like all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. He was like the evil, it, it, a lot of them. Anyway, he's great. You've got Brian Glover playing chess. You've got Leela Kay, and you've got Rick Mayall, who you will know from Drop Dead Fred. Yes. So he was Fred. He was the Drop Dead Fred. Okay. He was a comedy actor out there and then there's one this is interesting just a brief scene 
of the bus driver when everything's chaos yeah. in the streets, right? Right. It's a brief scene of the bus driver, and, and the actor's name is Vic Armstrong. Okay. He was the stuntman for both Christopher Reeve in Superman and Harrison Ford in not only Raiders of the Lost Ark, but basically everything. Like he was the go-to stuntman for Harrison Ford. That's amazing. Well, you bring that up. John Landis had a background in being a stuntman. Yep. There's a awesome scene and you are blowing my mind right now Yep. to continue with that thought. There's a scene where a bus hits a man, knocks him through a window uh-huh. during the chaotic scene at Piccadilly circus. Yep. And that's John Landis. Yeah. So he, and he gets tagged, man. It's he gets like, tagged wham, and knocked you know? through the window. Right. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. That I think is probably the most unsettling scene of the whole. It's not the werewolf victims that are unsettling to me. It's seeing the people go flying through the glass and then run over in the streets and then laying there and broken glass. It's pretty horrific. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, that was the first time in 15 years they had let a film be filmed in Piccadilly Circus. And the way that he got it was he went to the police, the local police, and he said, I will give you a free showing of the Blues Brothers. (laughs) And they all came to see the Blues Brothers together and they were so impressed that they said, all right, we will let you film on the streets of Piccadilly Circus. And it was like from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. So that entire scene they had filmed in just that really short time span. Wow. All right, so just a couple of tidbits on production for American Werewolf in London. Okay. Okay. Yep. The reason why John Landis really wanted to do London, you mentioned the fact that he spoke English. Well, that that definitely helps. Helps. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he said was London was horror central, right? That's the place of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. And the Werewolf of London. Right. And right. he wanted that Gothic Victorian London feel. Yeah. And as an American, it is unsettling to be away from your home country. So it, it kind of added to the to the tension. Yep. Also, in order to get an R rating, he had to tone down the sex scene and cut out a part where Jack ate a piece of toast and it fell out of his throat. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he also dropped a scene where the werewolf kills three homeless men. Right. You actually run into those guys in the theater and you get yep. to meet those. Yeah, you see you see them before they're killed and after they're killed, but not while they're killed. Right. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We want to give you guys access to our new feature, which is the Shirley Showcase. We have got from the 30-something movie podcast. Mr. Pat Canigallo. He's given his opinion on Def Leppard's Pyromania album versus Def Leppard's Hysteria album. Here's from Pat. Hey, guys, Pat here with Final Judgment on Def Leppard's Pyromania versus Def Leppard's Hysteria. Two great albums, one amazing, awesome band. Like, how are we gonna decide this? That is that is my dilemma. So I have gone back and forth, I have waffled. I have one day been ready to come in and say Pyromania, the next day come in ready to say Hysteria. I gotta be honest, I don't think I can say which one is the, obviously I can't say which one's the better album. Which one do I like more? Again, I, I, I don't know if I can do that. So I think what I'm gonna do is just note what I see as the differences, right? So Pyromania, fantastic album fantastic album the band sounds awesome you've got great tunes you've got some that have a little bit more metal to them some that are a little bit more classic rock you have the stadium rock anthem tune great vocals drum work incredible guitar solos the songs are interesting to listen to right you get interesting intros you get interesting outros great solos the whole thing i mean if you want to rock that's the album to do it to hysteria what do i got to say about hysteria 
also phenomenal rock and roll album. Love listening to it. When I think of Def Leppard, I think of Hysteria. When I think of Def Leppard's characteristic sound, I think of the album Hysteria. It's like the melodies, the guitar riffs that they're playing kind of go up to another level. It'd be a bad pun to say they take it up to 11, but the guitar riffs are like a different level. They're just that much more interesting. The songs are just that much more complex. Again, great rock. You got Pour Some Sugar On Me. I remember when that thing came out. I remember when the video came out and it showed that they had the laser show on stage on the video. Just incredible, incredible music. So if I had to pick a favorite, I couldn't. If I had to pick a better album, I certainly couldn't. I guess if I'm going to do Final Judgment, I'll have to give the nod to Hysteria because that to me is like Def Leppard's characteristic sound. When I think Def Leppard, I think of the album Hysteria. Till I listen to Pyromania and I'm like just rocking all the way through that one. So maybe I'll say Pyromania. No, I'll stick with Hysteria. All right, I don't know how I'm going to decide. I think I'll just listen to them both and then throw on Adrenalize for good measure. All right, guys, love the show. You're doing a fantastic job. Oh, man, I love Pat. Pat is one of my favorite guys in the whole wide world. He is always mentioning us on their podcast. I love listening to him. And I totally get it. It's, it's a really hard decision to make. Pat knows how to appreciate awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> what can you say? But these two albums are awesome. They are. They're truly incredible. And when we did our podcast, I was sure I was picking Hysteria. And then Pyromania snuck up and won me over. Definitely go check that out if you haven't heard it yet. Definitely go check out the 30-something movie podcast. If you are not familiar with that, those guys are awesome. Take a look at movies from 30 years ago and give some incredible insight and discussion. It's great stuff. That's right. Pat's a great guy. He never has a bad word to say about anybody. I mean, we could bring him on and talk Jaws 4 and he would find the great things about that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Check them out on the 30-something movie podcast. Pat, thank you so much for weighing in on Def Leppard's Pyromania and Hysteria. So that does it for this episode. Be sure to check us out next week. Be sure and whatever podcast app you're using to hit that follow button or subscribe button so that it automatically appears in your feed and you don't miss a single episode of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast.